Welcome to part two of the birth of the Special Victim Counsel Program with retired Lieutenant General Richard Harding, the Judge Advocate General of the United States Air Force from 2010 to 2014, who was instrumental in creating the SVC program. This part two continues where we left off from part one as General Harding discusses the seminal case of LRM v. Kastenberg that afforded victims' counsel certain legal rights on behalf of their clients. How universities across the country are now modeling aspects of military procedure in their administrative Title IX sex assault cases on campus, and his views on how to effectuate positive change. Here are a few clips from part two. I think we ought to hold our head high when it comes to the SVC program and know that we're on the cutting edge of um, you know where criminal justice needs to go. Give people time to, to inculcate change, but stand up for what's right. And if you see something, say something. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Yes, sir, and, and I actually uh, had some involvement with this myself. I was uh, part of that initial cadre back in December of 2012 and, and recall you coming in to speak to all of us. Uh, I think it was the very first briefing we had uh, that morning. And I recall you discussing this and uh, talking about how we were building the airplane in flight and uh, also discussed how this was more or less equivalent to the area defense program that was initiated back during the civil rights era. Uh, So it was quite a moving speech, uh, as I recall. But for kind of our listeners that Maybe to understand this a little bit better, too, to understand kind of where we were to where we're at today, there was there was a number of, of challenges, right, uh, that first year, especially as it was still a pilot program for about the first six months until that, that summer of 2013, I think is when it went full time. Could you speak to our listeners a little bit about that in a little further detail, also in, in respect to some of the cases, maybe um, touching upon LRM v. Kastenberg? Yeah, that was a, a pretty important day for us when uh, LRM, of course, that's the initials of a a sexual assault survivor, um, uh, opposed the military judge's order, uh, Josh Kastenberg, uh, denying her uh, what she believed was her right to have um, to be heard through counsel. And it was it was wasn't an easy thing to do at all. We've got appellate government. We've got appellate defense. It doesn't fit in either one of their pockets. Uh, we don't have an appellate shop um, for victims. And who's going to represent the judge? Because the judge is now a party to this. And what's the cause of action? Is it mandamus? I thought mandamus would work, but then, of course, you know, the All Writs Act really might not apply to military practice. So, so we had that problem. So I went to the JAG school and... Um, Uh, assigned a few of the attorneys down there to be the appellate representation for LRM. And then um, the judge was assigned counsel through JAT, through the uh, the trial side. So at this hearing, there are two hearings. The first one, of course, in front of the Air Force Court uh, of Appeals, and then the next one through CAF. You know, there were four tables because there were four parties. Prosecution, defense, judge, and the survivor of the victim. And the team from Maxwell did a great job. They really did. And and a lot of the judges just hammered with questions on, on both sides, but particularly 
you know, the side of, um, you know, the SVC program. And so the question before them was, first, does mandamus really apply? And they didn't reach that conclusion. Instead, they said, we believe the judge made a mistake. <laughs> so we're sending it back to the judge to fix it, which is kind of what mandamus does. <laughs> uh, so we, we, they never really didn't need to call it that. But still, to this day, it's it's a disputed point whether mandamus is actually a remedy that we can take take advantage of. And once it was announced, uh, the opinion was announced, you know, I kind of, well, I, I did, I taught to the point that, you know, now we know that to the extent that a victim has a right to be heard, and they don't have a right to be heard all the time. As I mentioned, there are three of our MREs that allow that. Um, they can be heard through counsel. Now, the court said that that could be in writing or uh, verbally live and didn't, didn't make a decision on that left it up to the trial judges on how that would happen, um, but that you just can't shut down uh, the victim's rights to um, be heard in some sense through their SVC. So that was very empowering for the SVC program, and I thought was the right decision. Had the ruling gone the other way, then we'd have SVCs that you know could counsel but could never really say anything to the court, and the victim would be in the same place that he or she was before, when uh, uh, when they didn't know quite how to respond to some of these questions. Uh, again, back to Rape Shield, I, you know, I can't argue that this is constitutionally compelled because I've never taken a case on constitutional or a course on constitutional law. So that's so I was we were very much worried about it. But we had a great team and it was led by Ken Thur, Colonel Ken Thur, um, who had uh, he and I litigated for some time. <laughs> and we had a lot of scar tissue on him, knew how to handle this. And he, and he did a great job. And he and his teammates um, really um, got the ball downfield. So we weren't sure what the court was going to decide after the hearing. You never know because of all their questions. But so I, I was delighted at, at the decision. And um, and you know what? Today, LRM v. Kastenberg is used in the civil community and the civilian community to stand for the same proposition. So you've got Meg Garvin out there saying, look at this case uh, to state courts and saying, you know, they kind of got it right. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's important um, to uh, make sure that uh, the victims have uh, adequate representation, representation with a voice. So I think that's great that the military practice is now leading, you know, uh, the evolution of uh, uh, civilian law in this matter. I'll tell you that the other place where we're leading on this matter is in campus sexual assault. It was interesting that when President Obama came out with his commission and the commission concluded that 87% are unreported and 13% are reported. Well, I don't know if he just borrowed from the military or if they actually did a study to find that out. But having helped the University of Missouri on their Title IX processes, I can tell you that there's a lot going on up there and they have the same dynamic we have. As I pointed out to them and others uh, that have asked me about this, the only difference between a military survivor and a civilian survivor is one's in uniform, one's not. That's the only difference. They both come from the same household. They're both recently emancipated from their parents, both the victim and the, and the subject. And what we recruit in the military are people that largely are going to take the post 9-11 GI Bill and go to college. They're going to wind up in one of these college dorms. So they're facing the same problem, an underreported event. Uh, it's getting a lot of attention because all of these university systems uh, have a state 
element to them. It doesn't quite get the um, uh, vitriol from uh, congressmen and senators that, that military sexual assault did, because at the end of the day, they're criticizing their own universities. Yes, sir. And I think when we were also talking about this with respect to Title Ten and for our, our or sorry, Title Nine for our, uh, our listeners, which is dealing with what goes on in the universities on campus. I think you had mentioned too that on for these investigations that occur on campus now that they're looking into whether both the the accused and the victim would be entitled to counsel. Right, that's true. And that uh, Secretary DeVos, uh, Secretary of Education, uh, put out, oh gosh, maybe three months now ago, her guidance. And her guidance is that when you have one of these complaints, you're to conduct a hearing. It's going to be open to the public that the FRE, the federal rules of, uh, of evidence are going to apply, that both parties must take the stand. And frankly, I think what it does is it just chases victims away. But um, But that's the current rules now depending upon what the election results are, we might go back to the status quo ante and go back to where we were before. And and the interest groups in this and, you know, the survivors' interest groups, they what they want is some kind of an informal process, an investigation, if you will. Maybe almost like an Article 32, you know, but but even not that sophisticated. And so they were worried that if, if there was a confrontational process under Title IX, Title IX deals with, um, you know, uh, gender equality, uh, really was intended for sports, but now it deals with largely sexual assault as well. Um, if you provided um, one party counsel, like the victim, then you're going to have to provide counsel for the other party and you start, you wind up with a trial, which is what has happened. And, and then you're going to scare, scare victims away. And, and just for our listeners, it's, it's not a criminal trial, it's an uh, administrative Yes, it's administrative, but it's treated, you know, they borrowed the federal rules of evidence. So now you're going to have rape shield as an issue. And, and both parties are entitled to, quote, advisors, end quote, which is highly suggested that, that those advisors be practicing attorneys. So what you wind up with is an administrative process that looks a whole lot like a criminal proceeding. Now, the burden of proof is different, not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but, you know, a preponderance of the evidence. But, um, you know, it's. Largely, like most of these, it's going to be one side against the other, one v one, he said, she said, kind of thing. And um, and it's important to remember also, particularly in the Air Force, it's not just female victims that we're dealing with. The majority of victims in the Department of Defense are male, and that's because 80% in the Air Force are male, a little over 20% are female. The probability of being assaulted sexually is greater for women than it is for men, but because there are so many more men. You wind up with a higher number of men. They're less likely for whatever, lots of different reasons to report. And so it's difficult. And, and the same thing applies on, on campus, I suspect. We just, we don't know because um, they don't have the processes that we have. They don't have this, you know, every other year review, uh, you know, anonymous survey. They don't do that. And when I was working with Senator McCaskill on Title IX, I said, that's what you really need to do first to find the problem. Uh, but it was hard to convince um, people with the, the large constituencies and all these from all these universities to do that. So, uh, so it's a harder it's a harder nut to crack on the on the civil side. But they're using our model uh, in in the Air Force and now the Department of Defense to kind of try to craft something that can get them uh, beyond this. So, yes, sir. I mean, it's just fascinating how we see that the military uh, started this right. The Air Force. Um, 
through through your leadership and spread to the entire DOD. And now we're seeing this uh, apply on college campuses uh, through their administrative process. Do you see this ever maybe even matriculating over to uh, the civilian world uh, in the criminal justice system? Yeah. You know, it's not uncommon to find victims counsel in the, in the civil process. What's uncommon and doesn't exist to a large degree, I mean, they've got victim advocates, with non-attorneys. And, you know, we had victim advocate program, non-attorneys, and it wasn't getting us quite where we needed to be. But you don't see uh, attorneys <clears throat> hired by the state. You know, my proposal to Senator McCaskill was, well, why not have the department, why not have some councils work for DOE, Department of Education, and they can do it regionally. So maybe Missouri only needs one, and we'll see. And they can travel from you know, he or she can travel from college to college. It's not hard to get around this state. Uh, <clears throat> maybe other states need two, but let let them work for DOE. And the problem today is that all the Title IX people work for the university. And a lot of them have been fired uh, because they did things that the university didn't appreciate. I think there's an inherent conflict of interest when you work for the institution that's kind of being looked at. No school wants to be known as the rape school. And sir, if I could interject for a second, maybe you could also explain to our listeners how you created the structure of the SVC program within the Air Force JAG Corps to eliminate or to try to reduce or eliminate that conflict of interest. Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's that's a good point. We uh, first we structured it regionally, um, similar to what the ADC program started to be. I knew we couldn't afford one at every base, and frankly, some bases we'd have a lot of people just without anything to do. So. Um, <clears throat> because either things weren't being reported or God were to allow that there weren't any sexual assaults there. But it was important that they work for, you know, somebody that was independent. Originally, it was, it was recommended that they work for the military justice um, division. And I said, well, you know, they do more than military justice. They do no contact orders. They do assignment, reassignment requests. There's a lot of stuff that they do there that really has nothing to do with military justice. And, uh, and I really think they need to be independent and they need to be nested uh, in what we call community legal services, which was basically legal assistance. You know, the, the guys uh, down in San Antonio that, that um, you know, help folks out with their um, veterans or with their claims. And, and then this one. Why? Because all three of them, you know, have a client with a face and, and that's where their obligation is owed. And it is bigger than military justice. Uh, you know, we've Talked about that for quite some time. A good friend of mine, Jim Russell, who worked in JJM, passed away a few years ago. Um, retired Air Force JAG colonel and, and then a GS-15. Uh, was the first kind of apostle for all this. <laughs> and he, he did great work going out there and evangelizing and saying, hey, you know, this is going to work. Because he had worked with the victim community for some time. He was the the first true believer, uh, and and then he created others, and uh, so we. But it was really important that they be independent uh, of all of that, and, uh, and not only in fact, but in perception as well. Yes, sir. So it, for our listeners, an independent chain of command, right? They weren't underneath the commanders. Oh no, no way. They they worked for a boss back in in in, in headquarters, Jag in D.C. Actually, at Bowling. So, uh, and the first uh, boss they have is a lieutenant colonel, and 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 uh, so if they had a problem, they were to call her. Uh, they could call me certainly, and I heard from a couple of them, but uh, but she was there to be their backup. 
completely independent, just like the ADC program. No way were they going to work for a commander. And and you know what? The commanders understood that. The you know General Schwartz, who preceded, uh, well, I guess it was General Welsh. General Welsh had me go to um, a, a meeting of the three stars where uh, it was a Corona style meeting. And uh, he said, I want you to brief this program. And you know what? The commanders, I thought there'd be resistance, but no, they thought it was great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to be involved in supervising any, anybody, you know, in, that, that dealt with this. And, and they said, hey, we've got ADCs, you know, welcome the SVC. So it worked. So, sir, the SVC program has come a very, very long way since its birth, right? Back in 2012, when you when you first stood this, worked to stand this up with you and and all, the entire team at the time, and here we are in 2020, going forward. Would you consider this maybe one of your uh, you know your lasting legacies, or one of the things maybe you're, you're the most uh, happy about that you achieved while um, being the judge advocate general? Yeah, I'm very, you know, at the risk of sounding immodest, I'm very proud of the SBC program. You know, I wasn't the only one. And you always need to give credit to those. I've t- talked about Jim Russell, you know, I, the people that believed in it as well and, and kind of made it happen, the foot soldiers out there. And uh, uh, But I'm very, very proud of this. I think it was the right approach. I think it's going to lead turn what the nation eventually does. And, uh, and I look forward to its continued existence. It, you know, part of the reason that some of the services didn't want to initially do this is because they knew that once they were beyond refusal speed, that they had to have one forever and they just weren't sure if they could afford it. And then Congress turns around and gives us millions of dollars to, you know, to, to, make it, to, to sustain it. So, um, you know, I, I think we ought to hold our head high when it comes to the SVC program and know that we're on the cutting edge of, um, you know, where criminal justice needs to go. And, uh, you know, and the result was that fewer um, survivors of sexual assault are flooding to the ranks of Protect Our Defenders and other groups that, you know, actually swept up unhappy uh, survivors. And, uh, and I think that's a, a great testament as well. And um, as long as we can continue doing what we, we do and, uh, you know, and sometimes, it, you know, 50 percent of these cases that go to court usually wind up in an acquittal. And that's, that's probably the right idea. Because at the end of the day, the burden of proof is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you're not there, you're not there. And you're likely to have an unhappy victim that wonders about that. But now they've got somebody they can kind of lean on. And, um, you know, and this SVC can explain to them how this works. And, you know, if you've ever dealt with RAIN, the um, Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, um, they track these things kind of like what the FBI does. They use some FBI numbers, but... They're down to 20% of civilian rapes are reported. Uh, Only one in five of those are prosecuted. And 50% of those one in five end in an acquittal. And that kind of looked a lot like where we were. And and that's okay. You know, what's not okay is kind of cutting the the victim loose and asking her, usually it's a female, that we don't get many males that report, to try to make it through on their own you know, without a flashlight in the middle of the dark in a forest, you know, it's just not well. So anyway, so that's why I think the program's, uh, you know, a a good program and well worth the money. And sir, any, um, any resources, books, videos, podcasts, otherwise that you think um, you would recommend to our listeners, maybe if they had an interest in learning more about the program or maybe getting involved if they're within the military? 
Yeah. Um, well, certainly raise your hand and say, I'd, I'd like to do that. And we had a lot that were, were thinking, this is a cool idea. Uh, I'd like to be involved. Um, <clears throat> before you really can be an effective SPC, I believe you need to have a little bit of trial experience, certainly understand, you know, what the rules of uh, what the MRE are all about um, <clears throat> and speak with that voice of confidence that comes from experience. So that's why the initial cadre, I was looking for a, a lot of People had trial counsel experience, some that had um, certainly ADC experience uh, to do this. So you can certainly do that. Meg Garvin runs an annual conference, and I know a lot of Air Force officers go up there. A lot of SVCs go to go to Portland to take her conference, and uh, and I've got a lot of respect for Meg. So uh, if you want to know more about this, then she's got all kinds of experts up there that are talking about all kinds of victim um, legal changes. And uh, they break up into small groups and they kind of take electives and uh, and it's and it's well worth anybody's time if, if you can find the TDY money to go up there. Uh, it usually occurs in May, but um, you know keep keep an eye on that and that would be I think the best resource that one can take. And you'll get all kinds of education from neurobiological responses to you know uh, changes in the in the in last year in the law, uh, in, in, you know in, in state courts. And and I think that would be well worth anybody's time. Yes, sir. And, and we'll make sure to put uh, that in the show notes, uh, contact information um, and links for Meg Garvin and what she does there out in Oregon. And, and sir, I uh, just want to give you the last uh, final words here and anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners on the birth of the SVC program or just the SVC program at large. Yeah. Take this as an example of trying to lean into the wind, speak truth to power respectfully, Give people time to, to inculcate change, but stand up for what's right. And if you see something, say something, John Lewis would say. And um, this is the kind of um, work that all of us can do. It's not just a judge advocate general. Yeah, I, mean, I know I had more access to people than other people in the JAG court. I get that. But, but you can do it on a smaller level. And, and make positive change. So if you see something that just isn't working right, say something and, and tell your supervisors and, and have trust and confidence that they just might take your advice and, and you can affect change. You know, we serve for a reason. We, we serve because, you know, we're, we're trying to serve others. And, uh, and you can't do that sitting on your hands and being silent in, in the face of something that's just wrong. So, so that's my advice. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time today. Our, I know our listeners will get a lot of value out of today's discussion. Uh, it's been an honor and privilege, sir, and uh, we wish you the best in your retirement. All right. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, sir. That concludes our interview with Lieutenant General Harding. I'd like to focus my top three takeaways on leadership from the interview. Number one, effectuating change takes persistence and time. The birth of the SVC program was a monumental initiative and one that initially faced extreme opposition both within the Air Force and DOD. Many senior leaders and elected officials at that time did not see the utility of affording victims their own counsel. Some argued that the government already represented victims' rights and or the Sexual Assault Response Programming Coordinator, i.e. SARC, along with victim advocates, were fully adequate to assist victims with their rights. Others stated the resources and manpower simply weren't there. However, General Harding understood how these criticisms were not adequate. As the government does not have an attorney-client relationship with victims, the SARC or victim advocate is not a lawyer and precluded from providing legal advice, 
and the military ultimately needed to ensure victims had greater trust in the military justice system, which could at least begin with the resources and manpower allotted at that time. General Harding faced an uphill battle, to say the least, to get the SVC program off the ground. He was constantly challenged and second-guessed by senior military leaders and elected officials. However, he understood the power of persistence and time required to effectuate change. And he never lost faith in his vision and belief that affording victims of sexual assault their own independent legal counsel would ultimately build their faith in the process and military justice system at large. Number two, take feedback in stride. It's important to listen to feedback. The art comes in what amount of deference or weight you give to any particular feedback. Not all feedback is equal. Some feedback may be good, while other feedback may be downright bad. The key lies in your discernment of the feedback based on all the facts and circumstances and your willingness to listen to all sides. Effective listening, as discussed in episode 9, is the hallmark of a good leader. But at some point, after considering all the feedback, action must be taken, which leads me to my last point in number three. Don't be a silent critic on issues that matter. Yes, you may face criticism and backlash from those that don't support your position, but that's okay. General Harding understood that's part of the process to effectuate positive change, especially views considered contrarian to a majority viewpoint. General Harding believed the SVC program was something worth fighting for despite holding a minority viewpoint at the time amid resistance to the idea. He could have remained a silent critic. That would have been easy and expected. However, he didn't choose that route. He had been studying the issues and listening for a long time. He understood the quote-unquote playing field of sexual assault within the military and the power of voice and choice to victims of sexual assault. And when the Air Force Chief of Staff asked General Harding what could be done, in light of all the training that didn't seem to be working that well at the time, General Harding was ready to offer a solution in the SVC program. Things really can and do change on account of one person standing up for a positive cause. Most today would say the SVC program has been a resounding success on behalf of victims' rights and the integrity of the military justice system. In conclusion, do you face any issues right now that may require a voice to effectuate positive change? Are you that voice? Maybe it's for a personal issue, a team challenge, or something larger. Either way, the process is more or less the same. It includes issue spotting, fact gathering, analysis, considering different courses of action, and ultimate recommendation. It's what leaders and legal professionals do all the time. So be ready to speak for the causes you believe in when called upon. Thank you for listening to another episode. If you like this episode, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform, and consider subscribing to the show. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes, along with others, at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, 
or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hope. Thank you.